Welcome to the Vincennes First Church of God Sermon Podcast. My name is Will Huebner. I'm the lead pastor. And we're so thankful that you've decided to tune in and listen to us today. We hope that through this message and the Word of God, you will find not only that you are challenged, but that you are encouraged. Here at Vincent's First Church, we believe that it's our job to create kingdom culture. And we hope that you'll join us Sundays at 10 o'clock. We love you and enjoy. There's something that I, I want to say that's, that, that's on my heart before we dive into the Word, and, and that is this. Uh, with the Christmas season coming also comes a, an abundance of opportunities in which we can be generous with what we have. And sometimes I get concerned as a pastor that we don't want to put so much in front of your face that you're like, oh my gosh, these people are trying to drain me. I want you to understand from me, from my heart, I think that all of our giving should come from a joyful place. And if you can't give from a joyful place, it's okay. You're not ready to give yet, that's fine. And I just want you to say, Lean into the Spirit and say, God, where would you lead me to give? Maybe God would lead you like me. I'm going to help Haiti get some peanut butter. Why? Because I love peanut butter, man. And I think that everybody should have access to the Peter Pan. That's just how I feel, you know. If you're a Jif, it's okay. It's okay to be wrong, but that's just, that's just me. All right. Moms like you, choose Peter Pan. Um, for me, I'll probably give some to this stockholders thing because I'm a product of youth conventions. I'm here today because I grew up going to those things and, it, and it, I got to see people from around my communities and in my state, other people my age that were believers. So that means a lot to me. Now, Operation Christmas Shoebox, I don't know, that's not really my thing, and, and that's okay. God is not asking for you to give every single thing that you have to every opportunity, but this season, search your heart and say, God, where would you lead me to give? That's, that's all we ask. We do not want to be a burden to you in, in any ways, and I just want to say thank you because we know from years past what an incredibly generous uh, congregation this is. So thank you for the ways that, that you give faithfully. All right. What you pay me for? Let's do this. This morning we are continuing the series that we've been in called Jonah. And in this series we're, we're looking beyond the big fish, right? Beyond this unbelievable event to ask the question, what, what does the life of Jonah reveal to us? And, and, and ask, what, what does the redemption of these Ninevite people, what does it teach us about ourselves? Now, last week we focused on redemption, this idea of, of Jonah being redeemed from running away from God, and the Ninevites being redeemed for their evil ways. We highlighted the fact that God made a way for redemption for both of them. Even though Jonah ran away and fleed from the presence of God, even though the, the Ninevite people were evil and they were not God's people. See, because of this, we understand that it's not our job to decide who's worthy of a second chance. It is simply our job to plant and water seeds by pointing everyone to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
understanding that the role of the prophet is to be soaked in the word of God so that God's word can be relayed to a people that need to hear it to serve as a notice for those who have gone off course, which should inevitably lead us all at some point to repentance. This idea of repentance meaning to turn away from evil, to go a different way, to, to, to go God's direction. And this idea that, that God is more concerned about the direction in which we're headed, more so than the location at which we find ourselves. And that there's no need to be driven by, by shame, the shame of where we are. Rather, to be driven by conviction that elevates the pursuit of progression over perfection. See, after Jonah delivered this prophetic message, God asked him, and the Ninevites were left with the decision. Do we ignore what Jonah says and we just keep doing what we've always done to, to stick with the status quo, or do we try to make change in our life? And I think that we, we're all faced with that same decision every day, to either be satisfied and complacent with our spiritual life, where at best we become stagnant, at worst we're slowly pulled back to where we started, or to continually to surrender to an understanding that our refining process will never stop. Like clay in the hands of the potter, we, we are carefully and thoughtfully being molded by God, a process that won't stop until we're reunited with God in death. We do not, however, want to mistake repentance for being a moment rather than a lifestyle. It's not just about this one moment where we turn around, but it's about continuing to try to move in God's direction. The people of Nineveh didn't stop being evil for one day and then just go right back to where they were. Nor is it safe to assume they quit being evil, cold turkey. But their progress gave God hope that change was going to happen. A hope that is only found in repentance where God's wrath was exchanged for mercy. But, but what, is, what is repentance? And what does that look like for us today? You know, we talked about repentance last week in the sense that its focus is not about where we are, but where we're headed. But I, but I want to take a deeper look at it this week. Like, what, what was it that the Ninevites did that appeased the wrath of God? How can we follow in their footsteps? Jonah 3.8, I think, gives us the outline for this. It is the Ninevite king's proclamation to the people of Nineveh. It's there we see how they responded to Jonah's prophetic word. There where we're given a blueprint of what repentance should look like in our lives. And this is what it says. People and animals must wear garments of mourning and everyone must pray earnestly to God. They must turn from their evil ways and stop all their violence. <laughs> Sorry. Sometimes when I read this, it, it almost seems like an an infomercial getting ready to happen with your pastor here. We're like, it's just three easy steps to repentance. <laughs> Only these steps are not easy. But the good thing is, is that we don't have to do them alone. Jesus paid and paved the way for us. The first piece is this. If you have your outline, you can fill in these blanks and follow along. Repentance begins, be begins? Whew. Sometimes words just don't come out right, guys. That's why we got them up on the screen. Repentance begins with acceptance and godly sorrow. 
It begins with acceptance and godly sorrow. After the prophetic word comes to Nineveh, their first reaction is to do what is to mourn. Mourning because their dysfunction was pointed out and their failure was made visible to them. I've been watching a, a cartoon with Malin where the main character realizes at some point in the show that she's the bad guy. She realizes that everything she had fought for was actually persecuting the innocent. Can you imagine that? Imagine believing that you're a good person only to find out that you're the villain. Imagine being proud of your dedication to God only to find out that you've been persecuting him. That's exactly what happens to Paul when he's on the Damascus road and, and he encounters Jesus. Imagine being the king of a nation and, and discovering the Bible, a, a book that reveals your nation's sinfulness. This is exactly what happens to King Josiah when he finds the word of God. He reads it to the people and they lament over all the things that they've done wrong. I don't want to speak for, for everybody here today, but I'll speak for myself. And I think it's to, uh, safe to assume that we've all been there having to bear at different times in our lives the weight of conviction. Whether intentionally or accidentally, we've acted out of a depraved mind and we needed correction. But what do we do with that correction? What do we do with those things that aren't right? Do we shake it off like a one-time thing and ignore it? Do we make promises to ourselves that it'll never happen again? Do we get angry with ourselves and begin to create some negative internal dialogue where we just put ourselves down all the time? Do we become overwhelmed with feelings of hopelessness that's fostered by shame? Or do we just accept our struggles as these fixed parts of who we are, our character, with no hope of change? Or do we do the right thing by accepting that we've fallen short and then use grace to stand back up, where we mourn our mistakes for a moment, but then keep pursuing God. That's the blueprint that allowed Paul, who once persecuted Jesus, to become an apostle. It's what allowed Josiah to destroy all the false gods in the nation of Israel. And it's what led Paul to do for others what Jesus had done for him I want to read to you 2 Corinthians, and it's important to notice that that too means that there was a letter before it. And this is what 2 Corinthians says. I'm not sorry that I sent a severe letter to you, though I was sorry at first, for I know it was painful for you for a little while. But now I'm glad that I sent it, not because it hurt you, but because that pain caused you to repent and change your ways. It was the kind of sorrow God wants for his people to have. So you are not harmed by us in any way for the kind of sorrow that, that God wants you to experience leads away from sin and results in salvation. There's no regret for that kind of sorrow, but worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, what does it do? It results in spiritual death. Repentance must come from a place of sorrow, a place of, of mourning, not in the sense that we're being motivated by our failure and that's what empowers us to change, but to, to be changed, we have to believe that we need change and then seek help to do so. Not a worldly sorrow that's more bothered by the inconvenience of being caught, but a sorrow that comes from the recognition of sin's destructive influence on our lives. It's that type of sorrow that causes us to surrender to the word of God 
and a yielded heart to, to God's word, that's what begins to transform our lives. There are three words that you need to understand. Guilt, conviction, and shame. Guilt is merely a verdict. It's a fact. It's not a feeling. And guilt is necessary in recognizing where we are and the fact that we need correction. But in no way does guilt bind us to any form of imprisonment from God. Rather, it's the acceptance of sin and failure that leads us either to conviction or shame. Conviction, on the other hand, is exclusive to the Holy Spirit. I'm going to say that one more time so you don't miss it. Conviction is exclusive to the Holy Spirit and is used to reveal sin and its consequences with only two purposes, guys. To protect us from death that sin constructs in our lives and to draw us closer to God. Those are the only two things that conviction does. The easiest way to distinguish conviction from everything else is to understand that conviction will always lead to hope. Because like repentance, its focus is on your future, not on your past. But where God uses conviction to build you up, Satan uses shame to tear you down. Conviction is trusting that God still believes in you, where shame causes you to question whether or not anybody could believe in you. Shame is not productive, guys. It's an all-out attack on the way that you view yourself. It's a lie that says that your character is defined by your mistakes, and it ruins your future. Satan uses shame to blind you from the reality of the cross and to bind you into just repeating your sin over and over again. But the truth of Scripture reminds us that Jesus took the weight of our guilt and nailed it to the cross. And unlike the thief that comes to destroy, Jesus came to give new life. To me, this was so important to clarify because when I say that, that word mourn, I, I don't want to mislead you because in no way, shape, or form do I mean shame. Guys, we are guilty and, and we mourn who we've been. We've, we mourn what we've done and we mourn the guilt of others by mourning what has been done to us. We grieve the places in life where, where we have fallen short and we grieve the places that have broken us. But because of the cross, we never, and I mean never, mourn without hope. Because the God we serve renews, restores, regardless of our past. After a bone is broken, a callus made of collagen forms at the site of the break. And the body begins to bring calcium deposits to mend the bone. Eventually that break will heal and the callus will break down and the bone will regain its shape. But before that happens, that fracture site is fortified with calcium deposits and is often stronger than the surrounding bone. This truth is why David writes in Psalms, let the bones that you have broken rejoice. He noticed that the same thing is true in his spiritual life, that sometimes pain is required to realize that, hey, there's, there's something in my life that's not right. And though that pain can be difficult to bear, it's the only path in finding healing. It is godly sorrow that, that motivates us to surrender ourselves to the Holy Spirit and to understand that you are now and you never will be bound to your past. Does it mean that your past needs to be mourned? Yeah, but only so your past doesn't become your future. 
Lead me to the next one. Repentance requires ambition cultivated by humility. Repentance requires ambition cultivated by humility. The next part of Jonah 3.8 says this, and everyone must pray earnestly to God. Maybe ambition seems like a weird word to use with humility, but I think that's where the earnestly comes in. Scripture here doesn't say that they prayed. It doesn't encourage us to pray. It says to pray earnestly, to, to pray with passion, to pray like your life depends on it, to pray like your future well-being depends on it, to know how badly you need direction and to seek it passionately. In order to do that, humility is such a vital piece because without it, a, your prayer life is not existent. But at the same time, what, what good is prayer if we don't surrender to it? What, what good is prayer if we do all the talking? What good is listening if we have no intention of doing what God asks us to do? When I worked in Pennsylvania, unfortunately, we had to park cars at the fair. And I say unfortunately because it was a nightmare. It really was. Most of the time I spent most of the day getting yelled at by somebody because I parked their car too close. So I was there usually from about nine in the morning till nine at night. And I remember this dude shows up with this like small little circus act. We're not talking about big circus, but he's got this beautiful white Sumatran tiger in a cage. And one of the wheels to the cage is flat. So he comes over to me and he says, hey man, do you mind helping me push this tiger to my tent? I'm like, sure, why not? So I get over there and the guy says, hey man, there's a right and a wrong way to do this. And now I'm starting to have second thoughts. He says, when you push the cage, make sure that your hands are flat against the metal and push this way. He says, if you grab the bars like this, the tiger can bite you. That's not good. And so because I enjoy my fingers and wanted to keep them, I listened to this guy, right? Why did I listen to what this guy told me? Because he's the tiger expert, not me. Sometimes I think we have to understand that about God, that the Holy Spirit, along with the Word of God, gives us the ability to communicate with God, to talk with the Alpha and the Omega, the one who created us and the world we live in. Doesn't it make sense that we would want to listen to what he has to say? So what is it that keeps us from continuing to seek his guidance daily? And I get that it's not always easy to hear or understand what God is saying or doing, but let's not kid ourselves. It's often pride that keeps us from listening. See, the Israelites always seemed to, to end up back in the same old routine where they just were doing what they thought was right in their own eyes. Almost this, to, to say that pride is an eventuality for, for all of us who forget who God is and what he's done for us. And Peter teaches us, despite what you might think, we need more grace as we grow in faith. Paul's letter to Timothy supports this idea. Paul calls himself the worst sinner. Here, a man of incredible faith, near the end of his journey, this guy who has written most of the New Testament, right? He's calling himself the worst sinner. Because holiness is not a pursuit of perfection. 
Holiness is a pursuit of surrender, a process of admitting your weakness before God, which means the more dependent you are on God, the holier you can become. I want to read 2 Chronicles 7, 14. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Wow, those three steps sound kind of familiar, don't they? Have you ever given thought to the idea that the Ninevites may have lost sight of their purpose I can't help but to think that, that their earnest prayer was, was all about asking, like, what now? Okay, what we were doing was evil. Oh, we get that, but, but what do we do now? What are we supposed to do? And doesn't that happen to us? Sin increases in our lives sometimes because we lose sight of our purpose. Is evil a reality that's made possible when we neglect our Creator and His design for us? And maybe right now you'd like to throw something at me because <laughs> this is such an open-ended thing. You're like, thanks, Pastor. How am I supposed to find my purpose, what I was created for today in church? How do I even begin figuring that out? Well, I think the answer is here, earnest prayer. Can you honestly tell me that that's what you've done in your life? Earnestly pray? Pray without ceasing? To, to pray like your life depends on it? To pray like your purpose depends on it? to constantly, daily surrender yourself to, to the Word of God and, and, and speaking to Him? Man, if you want to know what you're made for, you probably got to ask the one that made you. To do that requires humility and ambition. Humility to admit that, I, I got no idea. Humility to pray earnestly, to keep praying, and the ambition to be bold enough to try different things and to go where you think God might be calling you. Like, if, if you don't know where a puzzle piece goes, what do you do? Sometimes you got to figure out where <laughs> all the places it doesn't fit. I think it's really easy for us to go through seasons where we feel lost. Seasons where we kind of question everything that we do. Man, maybe seasons where it feels like everything I'm doing is wrong. Could I have been a better husband here, a better father there? Could I have been a better pastor too? I think it's easy to get sucked into that vortex of people pleasing. And our failure to please others can be heartbreaking for us. But I think that we got to come back sometimes to, to a realization that there's really only one important thing. And that's giving our all to doing the right thing for the right reasons. Giving our all to do the will of our Father who is in heaven. Matthew tells us why it matters so much. He says, because when you seek him with all that you are, everything else lines up in place. Everything else is added unto you because our dependence on him makes us better spouses, makes us better parents, makes us better people. Micah 6.8 reminds us, oh people, the Lord has told you what is good and all that he requires of you. And that is this, to do what? Do what is right. Love mercy, walk humbly with God. Do what is right. Love mercy, walk humbly with God. Let me give you the last piece. Freedom from evil looks a lot like trust, not effort. Freedom from evil 
looks a lot like trust, not effort. Guys, Nineveh had a problem. <laughs> they were evil. <laughs> so it was a blessing to have Jonah come and, and make them aware of that problem. And that first step of, of mourning what they had done, that was great. And then they see God in prayer. But that last piece of it talks about how we've got to turn away from evil. It's so important that we turn away from evil. But sometimes I, I come back to, okay, that's great. I think we've all understood that we shouldn't be evil. I think we've all understood that we should turn away from evil. But, but, but how do we do that? There's a story in Scripture that I love, and it's in Acts. And it's a time where the church is kind of exploding, and there's some people in the region that aren't very happy about it. One of them, King Herod. And so King Herod's doing his best to disrupt everything that's going on. In fact, he kills James, the brother of John, and then he imprisons Peter. And Peter is in prison, and I kind of want to read what happens. This is Acts 12, 6 through 8. Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound in chains. Like, they got this dude under lock and key. Like, that's how important they think Peter is. They not only have him in prison, they have him prisoned and chained to two guards that are sleeping right next to him so that if he tries to do anything or if anything happens, they're there to prevent it. And this is what happens. An angel of the Lord stood next to them and a light shone in the, in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him and said, get up quickly. And then when he got up, the chains fell off his hands and the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your, your sandals. And he did so. And he said to them, wrap your cloak and follow me. We're going. It's clear to me when you, when you read this story that the person responsible for Peter's freedom is God. But Peter would not have escaped if he didn't obey the direction of the angel. Peter was commanded to stand, and it was only then that his chains fell off. If Peter doesn't stand, if he doesn't listen to the angel, there's a good chance he stays stuck in prison. This means that we, we bear some weight of responsibility in our pursuit of freedom. But what does that look like? What, what, what is our part? Because I, I don't think that God's expecting us to be Houdini. It's, it's not our job to free ourselves. Peter stood up and then the chains fell off. Guys, Peter didn't break out. God broke in. So the question remains, then what's our responsibility to do as Peter did, guys? To listen and to follow. Malin, one year for Christmas, got this underwater camera. And we were excited about it as parents. She was excited about it. Christmas Day, she opens it up. She takes it out of the package. And we read those dreaded words, batteries not included. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me, man. So we tear through the house. We're taking batteries out of remotes, doing what we can to get some, some batteries in this camera find batteries, put it in the camera, turn it on. No memory card. So I'm like, okay, I have, I have memory cards. I have a camera. It's fine. I can give her one of my other ones. We open it up. Guess what? No, it only takes the mini. Like, you got to be kidding me, man. So can't do anything that day. We go to the store. We buy a mini card, we put it in there. She's taking pictures. 
she's got that thing on for like 20 minutes and it dies. I'm like, are you kidding me? 20 minutes? That's how we're getting here? And this thing's going to die on us? Like I was so, I was beyond frustrated that this whole camera experience was, was driving me nuts. But I wonder how many of us are facing that same thing in reality. We, we get frustrated because we don't have enough power. Frustrated because we're trying to break the chains in our life by our own strength. Like I think we got to wake up and realize that, that Peter doesn't hulk out. He doesn't escape by his own craftiness. He simply listened and obeyed. And he obeyed because he trusted God. Like even in his imprisonment, he continued to trust God. I mean, think about it. Following God is what got him in there in the first place. But he believed that a God who got him in would be a God who would get him out. He believed that he would be faithful. And I think that in our own lives, we have to remember that we serve an if you, then I, God. God says, if you remain faithful to me, then I will be faithful to you. If you're willing to go to war, then I will fight with you. If you refuse to bow a knee to other gods, then I will stand in the fire with you. If, if you will build a boat, then I will save your family. If you go to Egypt, then I will free your people. If you put your feet in the water first, then I will part the waters. That's what happened in Joshua 3. It says, today you will know that the living God is among you. Now choose 12 men from the tribes of Israel, one from each tribe. And the priest will carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, and as soon as their feet touch the water, the flow of the water will be cut off stream and a river will stand up like the wall. We, we cannot miss this step. I will show up if you're willing to listen and obey. You, you put your feet in the water. You trust me that much, then you know what I'm going to do? I'm I'm going to hold that water back. See, the people who learned to trust did so by surrendering their wills. The Bible heroes that, that I referenced here in, in some of these scriptures, they're heroes because of their faith, not because of their ability. They believed that God would do what he, what he said. And they did what God asked them to do. And through their obedience, they found a God to be faithful in return. But I think it's important for us to understand this completely. Let's not, let's not confuse obedience with faithfulness. For the power is not in our obedience. It's not obedience that carries power, but it's our obedience that displays faith. And it is faith that has the power, not faith in, in us, but faith in God that he will show up and do what he says. A faith that trusts Jesus to help us when we can't do it on our own. I'm going to ask the band to come back up. And I want to close with this scripture because I think it's so powerful to understand what's going on here. This is Colossians 2, 20 through 23. You have died with Christ and he has set you free from the spiritual powers of this world. So why do you keep following the rules of the world such as don't handle don't taste, don't touch. Such rules are mere human teachings about things that deteriorate as we use them. These rules, they, they seem wise because they, they require strong devotion. 
pious self-denial, severe bodily discipline, but they provide no help in conquering a person's evil desires. There is nothing wrong with obedience. There is nothing wrong with discipline. But the moment you think those things are going to save you, you're lost. Because those things come out of our human strength. And those things are good. They're not bad. They're not evil. They're good for us to have. But if we become reliant on them, we're going to end up lost. We're going to end up surrendering our lives to evil. Because we're not strong enough. That's what it says right here. Look at it. It says, they provide no help in conquering a person's evil desires. You want to know why? Because only God can do that. God is the only force in our lives that can help us overcome evil. The only thing. You know, I made a huge mistake when I got married. As being a man and struggling with lust almost my entire life, I assumed that when I got married, that I wasn't gonna struggle with lust anymore. Here now I have a a wife and and we can do what married couples do and it's gonna be awesome and I don't have to worry about that anymore. And guess what, nothing changed. And then at some point I got frustrated with my wife because I'm like, "You're, you're, you're not helping me out. You were supposed to solve this problem. And I remember God speaking to me so clear and he said, your wife is not God. She can't help you overcome evil. Only I can do that. Guys, we we have to quit trying to get other people in our lives. We have to quit relying on ourselves to overcome the evil in this world. It's not going to happen. This is what makes this story so powerful. We have this group of people who are not God's people living in a foreign land under Assyrian rule. And God sends them a messenger and says, you got to change because your evil is going to kill you. Your evil is going to destroy you. And what do they do? They mourn what they've done. They seek him earnestly in prayer. And it's in that seeking of God where they said, God, you're going to have to show us what to do. You're going to have to show us how to change. You're going to have to show us how to live. How do we love people? He says, you can love because I loved you first. You can stand up against temptation and sin because I'm with you. Not because... You can read your scriptures and come to church and you get all these qualifications and eat at Chick-fil-A and then all of a sudden you're just a spiritual giant. No, it's a daily surrender to say, okay, God, in humility, I understand that what I'm going to face today, I cannot overcome. I need you with me. Go with me. Be a part of my life. Lead me. Guide me. I think that's part of the reason why why Scripture tells us to to never cease praying. It's not that we, (laughs) it's a two-way conversation, right? We never cease praying. To me, it's not even in the sense of we're always talking to God. No, no, no. We're always listening for what He's telling us. Hey, avoid that. Ah, That's going to kill you. No, there's something better. That's what conviction is, is understanding that wherever you've gotten in your life, he's got a better plan for you. But there's no way to accept that without resting in his presence. I don't know where you are today. 
I don't want to belabor anything else. But the altars are open. As we sing, you can, you can minister uh, to God from where you are, to cry out, to, to kneel, to what, whatever you have to do. But know this. It doesn't take watching the news to understand that there is incredible evil in this world. And there's only one who can overcome it. And he loves you and he wants to be there for you. Charlie, would you lead us?